0: And he and god so we have come to know and to believe the love that god has for us god is love and whoever abides in love abides in god and god abides in him well let's pray together <sighs> heavenly father we thank you for this word that you've given us to reveal to us your heart to reveal to us your love and the character of your love for us and the way that you show it to us in your son and your spirit Lord, would you open this word to us by the power of your spirit so that we might understand, that we might cling to Christ through this text and be transformed and sanctified by your spirit through this word. And Lord, would the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this through Jesus Christ, amen. Well, a few years ago, astronomers from all around the world worked together to get to take the first picture of a black hole. It's not every Sunday that you hear black hole twice in one service. (laughs) Do you remember seeing this online? It was all over social media and uh, all over the news. This image, the first image of a black hole. Um, And everybody was so excited because, you know, we got to see this first image of something that has baffled and confused people for over a century. Because even though uh, astronomers estimate that there's a black hole at the center of every galaxy, um, there's still a mystery in many ways. But the most mysterious and fascinating thing about that image of the black hole is that it wasn't actually an image of a black hole. See, a black hole is a point in space-time where gravity is so strong that light cannot even escape its pull. Um, So it's actually the absence of light, so nobody could ever see a black hole. A black hole is formed when a big enough star dies. The star explodes, and it collapses in on itself, and it continues to collapse in on itself. Everything in the galaxy around it pulling in and ripping apart the stars and planets that surround it. That is what you're looking at when you see the image of a black hole. Not the black hole itself, but the wake of destruction it leaves in its path and the parts of the galaxy that might make its next meal. Valentine's Day is on Wednesday, which means there's a lot of talk about love around us. <laughs> in a lot of ways, our culture is obsessed with love. Even though nobody can seem to agree on what love is, everybody agrees that love is good, that we should aspire to it, and that we're able to love love. But God's word confronts us with the painful reality that we're not loving by nature, but we're more like black holes. We are the center of our own galaxies in our sinful nature. We chew up and spit out the people around us, leaving a wake of destruction wherever we go. We're collapsed in ourselves, we're self-obsessed. Therefore, because our hearts are like black holes, any change toward actually loving other people must be an evidence of a miracle. And that's what our passage shows us today. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us. He performs a miracle in our hearts to change them from being a black hole to being able to love. Our passage will show us that God loved us when we were unlovable and unlovely by not only sending Jesus into the world to die for us, but also by sending his Holy Spirit into our hearts to change them so that they can love. We'll see this in three points, the law of love, the hate of humanity, and the love of the Lord. And so we'll first define love in our first point, the law of love. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you'll likely recognize what I mean when I say the law of love. It, this happens throughout, especially in the New Testament, where, where the, all of God's commandments are said to be summarized by two commandments, two great commandments, to love the Lord your God, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So that is the law of love. And I I often actually um, reference this in our gospel renewal Um, Sunday by Sunday. I reference the law of love as our standard as Christians. Uh, So we have these two commandments that summarize our duties as Christians, to love God and neighbor. But even though they're kind of simple commandments, you know, very brief commandments, we don't always know what it means to love. It can somewhat be uh, ambiguous for us. What does it mean to love God and love neighbor? What is love itself? Well, our passage helpfully gave a clear and concise definition of love. Did you, did you catch that in verse 8? What did it say? It said, God is love. And so that's our definition from our passage. God is love. And even though that is quite a simple concise definition, it can often lead to a lot of misunderstanding. The most common misunderstanding of that passage is when people reverse the order. They say, love is God. And so then they define love and they apply that definition to God. Uh, They might define love as just a feeling or, or a really strong emotion or attraction. They might define love as accepting others for who they are, tolerating other people and accepting them uh, still others avoid the definition altogether, and they just say, love is love. But what is love? Love can be a very difficult word for us to define, especially in English, because we use it in so many different contexts. I could say, I love pizza, and I love my wife, and hopefully those mean very different things. <laughs> but, but John didn't say this. He didn't say love is God. He said God is is love. So we don't need to go through this difficult job of defining love first. Rather, we let God define love for us. God's own character and nature and his actions show us what love is. That's what it means when he says God is love. It means we look to God for our definition of love. And our passage gives a second definition of love that follows that exact pattern. It looks to God to show us what love is. Look again at verses nine and ten. John says that if you want to know how to love, you need to look to God and the way he gave his only son as a sacrifice on our behalf. If you want to know what love is, you look to God and how he sent his only begotten son into the world so that we could have a life. And that's really important because some people misconstrue the nature of Jesus' sacrifice. They they make it out to be that Jesus was the loving and gracious one and the father was wrathful and full of justice and jesus had to win over the father and convince him uh, to forgive us but that's not the case at all that couldn't be farther from the truth this verse points us to the father's love as the reason that jesus came into the world as a sacrifice for us and that's just like john three sixteen: god so loved the world that he gave his only son and so our passage tells us that god's love was most obvious when he gave us Jesus. And that tells us a few things about the nature of God's love. It helps us to define God's love. We can see four things about God's love in in his giving of his son for us. First is that God's love is outward facing. Our passage tells us that we can see God's love most clearly when he's doing something for others, for his people He isn't self-centered, but he is supremely concerned for us and our needs. And that leads us to another characteristic of God's love. He's not only uh, concerned with others more than himself, but he is concerned with the undeserving. So that's the second thing. God is concerned with the undeserving. He loves the unlovely and the unloving. John tells us that we see God's love because he loved us when we were sinful and dead. He loved us when we were his enemies, when we hated him. God loved us. When we refused to love him, he sent his son. And that shows us a third thing about God's love, that his love is forgiving. In the face of our hate and sin, God didn't bring us to trial and punish us. Instead, he forgave us. He did everything necessary. He paid every price to forgive us. And what did it take? well of course it took his only son and that shows us the fourth thing about god's love that his love is self-sacrificing self-giving god forgave our sins by giving jesus to pay our debts john says that god gave his son as the propitiation for our sin and that word propitiation refers to uh, a sacrifice to appease divine justice and wrath To appease divine justice and wrath. Some translations call the Son an atoning sacrifice. And that's what this word means that, that Jesus was an atoning sacrifice for our sin. And this points us to the reality that God is perfectly loving and forgiving, but He is also just. He also has a just wrath that needed to be propitiated that needed to be atoned for. And so in order to forgive our sins, he had to give his only son to right our wrongs and pay our debts. And Jesus willingly did so when he was sent. So we see that God's love is outward facing, it's concerned with the undeserving, it's forgiving, and it is self-giving. But John doesn't just stop there. He says in verse 11 that if God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This doesn't just mean that God's love for us should motivate us to love other people, but even that our love for others should look like God's love for us, that we should imitate the way that God loved us. And so what does that mean? That means our love needs to look like those four things. Our love needs to be outward facing. Paul says in Philippians 2, that in humility we are to count others more significant than ourselves, and we're not only to look to our own interests but also the interests of others. That means that we need to be outward-facing like God's love. We love others by being concerned for their well-being, counting them more significant than ourselves, looking to their needs and trying to meet those needs when we see them. And so that also means that we need to love people who are unlovely who don't deserve it, who aren't worthy of our love, who are needy, who even don't love us. We're repeatedly commanded in the New Testament to love our enemies and pray for our persecutors. And so just like God, we are to love those who don't deserve it and who hate us. And in order to love the undeserving, our love also must be forgiving. Think of the Lord's Prayer, forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. And that just means that forgiven people must be forgiving people. Because we've been forgiven by God, we must forgive our neighbors. And if we must be forgiving, that means we also must be self-giving in our love. Even if it comes at great personal cost to forgive and love others, we must pay that cost. In 1 John 3, we read, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And of course this means we're called to imitate Jesus's sacrificial love for us in the ultimate way, by literally laying down our life for our brothers and sisters. But very few of us will be in a position to actually sacrifice in that way. And so we're called to sacrifice of ourselves in many ways leading up to that ultimate way. It's kind of an argument from the greater to the lesser. We're to give of ourselves and sacrifice ourselves for the good of others. We're to lay aside our own desires and needs in order to serve others. This is how we ought to love, in imitation of God's love. But what about the first greatest commandment? At the at the beginning of this point, I brought up the two great commandments: to love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. We've just talked about loving your neighbor, but what about loving God? Well, if you're familiar with the Reformed Catechisms, one of the ways they describe the Ten Commandments is in light of the, uh, uh, the two greatest commandments. And so the first four commandments are said to reflect our love for God, and the second six reflect our love for neighbor. And that means that the first four commandments, which really just boil down to worship, uh, pure worship of God alone, uh, that is one way that we're to love God with all our heart, we're to worship him and be devoted to him. But there's also another way that we're to love the Lord with all our heart. If you continue reading to the end of 1 John chapter 4, in verse 20, he says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And John isn't just saying that it's easier to love the people around you, because they're visible while God is invisible, he's actually saying that our love for people manifests our love for God. And why is that? It's not just that people are invisible while God is invisible, but it's even more that God made people as the visible image of himself. And so another way that we can love God is by loving those who bear his image. We love God by loving those who bear his image. And this shows us the close relationship between the two greatest commandments, that we are to love our neighbors because we love God and in the same way that God loves us, but also one way that we love God is by loving our neighbors who bear his image. So there's a reciprocal relationship between the two greatest commandments. And this is the great love that we're called to love others with, a divine love. We're called to imitate God's love. God's love is our pattern for love. But this immediately reveals a big problem for us, doesn't it? We fall utterly short of God's love. And so that brings us to our second point, the hate of humanity. In, uh, in Dostoyevsky's book, The Brothers Karamazov, one character named Ivan made an honest confession to his brother Alyosha. He, Ivan said, I could never understand how it's possible to love one's neighbors. In my opinion, it's precisely one's neighbors that one cannot possibly love. Perhaps if they weren't so close. And then he says that it's because as soon as they get close enough for us to see, love vanishes. Maybe because they have a bad smell, or they have a stupid face, or they stepped on your foot once. And it's brutal, but this is an accurate assessment of our fallen and sinful hearts. We come up with the lamest excuses to stop loving our neighbors. Just like in the parable of the good samaritan we're prone to pass by someone in need if their race appearance or smell is offensive to us as a result of the fall we're full of hate and most times we only love others when it benefits us this is what john says in verse 8 anyone who does not love does not know god in other words because of our fall into sin we're estranged from god and because we're estranged from god We are unable to love God and neighbor. The way that we define love as other focused and self-giving sounds insane to our sinful hearts. It sounds completely impossible. If you think of the person that is the most difficult to love in your life, this kind of love sounds completely impossible. And we can see this in the way that our culture emphasizes self-love. And you know, of course, uh, we need to love our, and, and take care of ourselves, but never at the expense of others. Uh, but our culture tells us to put ourselves first, to love ourselves at all costs, and to cut out anyone who gets in the way of our project of self-love. Some of the most ancient Christian theologians, like Augustine and Luther, describe uh, sinful humanity's obsession with self-love by saying that we're curved in on ourselves, that the sinful heart is curved in on itself. Instead of being outward facing and concerned with the good of others, our sinful nature pulls inward more and more so that we're self-obsessed and concerned with our good above all. Instead of loving the unlovable, we only love those whom we deem deserving and whom we stand to benefit from. As soon as someone stops benefiting us or starts to drain us from our our joy or our energy, we cut ourselves off. Instead of forgiving the sins of others, we tip the scales. We expect them to forgive us, but we exact perfect justice on others. Instead of sacrificing ourselves for the good of others, we take from others for our benefit. This world's motto may as well be, it is better to take than to give. This image of being curved in on ourselves is a lot like saying that we're black holes by nature. We chew up and spit out the people around us, leaving a wake of destruction. We're inward focused, constantly collapsing everything else in on ourselves. We're curved in on ourselves just like a black hole. We're inward focused, the center of our own galaxy, incapable of turning outwards as we saw from verse 20, if we don't love our neighbors who we can see, that means we don't love God either. Now you might be thinking this is too harsh. After all, we see natural people, even the most ardent atheist, most devout Muslims, being quite loving people at times. And the best example is parents, most even unbelieving parents, love their children more than anything. But does that mean they fulfill the law of love? You have to remember, the law of love is twofold, love God and neighbor. And so even when unbelievers seem to love other people, their neighbors, they reject Jesus and his gospel, and so they fail to love God. But even the love of unbelieving parents can be self-serving. Maybe their children are their retirement plan or their time machine to do all of the things that they missed out on when they were kids, or maybe their children are just another way of showing to the world what great people they are, a way of self-justification. And not only that, but even the most loving mother or father needs a break from loving their child after a long day or find it difficult to love their child when he's screaming and throwing things in the middle of a grocery store. But notice that I had to say, most parents love their children more than anything. Because it's true that most do, but many don't. Many parents neglect their children or even worse, abuse their children. And if little children who are the most vulnerable and least deserving of hate are treated this way, can we really say that humans are loving by nature? And even when humans are civil and caring, is that really love in the way God defines it? This is a reality we are born into as a result of the fall. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God's holy law and ate the forbidden fruit, they fell into hatred they dragged all humanity in with them it was selfishness and self-centeredness that drove eve to take the forbidden fruit in the first place thinking she would benefit from disobedience thinking that she would get something that god was holding out from her and just like a black hole eve pulled her husband in with her to destruction and likewise adam pulled all humanity in with him and when god confronted adam he didn't sacrifice himself He didn't give of himself for the sake of his bride. He tried to sacrifice her. He pointed to her as the object of God's judgment. And what about their children? The very next chapter after the fall reveals the effects of human sin on human nature. Cain killed his brother Abel because he was jealous of Abel's righteousness and favor with God. And this shows us that the fall into sin brought hate into our hearts but there are other consequences for our hate and disobedience as well. It isn't just that we're unable to fulfill the law of love, but that because we daily break his law, we are guilty before God. This is what John hints at when he calls Jesus a propitiation. Like I already said, propitiation is is a sacrifice to appease divine wrath. And if God's wrath needed to be propitiated, that means there was a wrath against us. That means that we were under God's wrath. And when John says that Jesus gives us life in verse 9, he's hinting at the fact that without him, we're dead. This is the verdict that hangs over us by nature. Because of our hate for God and his image bearers, we are spiritually dead and under under his wrath and curse. In the Brothers Karamazov, Alyosha responded to Ivan's confession by pointing to Jesus' love as an example of the possibility of loving your neighbor. But Ivan replied, and he said, in my opinion, Christ's love for people is in its kind a miracle impossible on earth. True, he was God, but we are not gods. And that raises the question, is he right? Is he right to say that we'll never be able to love like God? That we'll never be able to to do what John tells us to do, to love because God loved us? Because we're not gods? Are we left dead in our sin and under God's wrath the consequence of our inability to love? Well, these questions bring us to our third point: the love of the Lord. As we've already seen, God's love was made most obvious to us in the life of Jesus. Jesus himself is a gift of God's love to fallen humans. And so Jesus is exactly the right place to look at when you feel hopeless and unable to love. Because In our state of being unable to love other people or please God, God didn't say, you just have to love me this much and then I'll save you. He didn't say, we just need to put in some effort first. We just need to clean up our act a little bit. And then he'll respond by showing us grace. He didn't wait until we deserved his love. Look again at verse 10. What does John say? This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And this is the most important thing for us to know about God's love. It isn't just an example for us to follow. It is the solution to our greatest problem. God's love is not just an example for us to follow. It is the solution to our greatest problem. God's love doesn't simply leave us reflecting on how far we fall short, on how unable we are to love our neighbors. Rather, his love pulls us up out of our hatred and our death. Because of the Father's love, Jesus came into the world to deliver us from our sin and the punishment we deserve for it. He delivered us by sacrificing himself on the cross, which was the ultimate expression of God's justice and his love, as well as humanity's hate. On the cross, Jesus suffered all the punishment we deserve for our sin, He died our death and he was hated by everyone around him and yet he was the only person to ever live who did not deserve the hate of his neighbors or the wrath of God. He loved the Lord with all his soul and his neighbor as himself to the point of dying for his neighbor's good, to the point of laying down his life for his brothers. And as he hung on the cross, he suffered for our hate and our sin and absorbed God's wrath on our behalf. And it's because of Jesus' perfect love and his atoning death that we are made right with God. We're justified, not because of anything in us, not because we loved God first, but because he loved us and gave himself for us. Because he gave his Son to propitiate his wrath and to make us right with God. And Jesus didn't hang on the cross forever. On the third day, he was resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he also gives us new life in his spirit, just as the spirit raised him from the dead. He raises us from the dead. This is what we see in verse 9. God sent his son into the world so that we might live through him, so that we might be resurrected through him. And what does it mean to live through Jesus? It, it, It not only means that we will have eternal life after our death, but it also means that we have life now. It means that Jesus delivers us from being dead in our sins. He removes our dead hearts and gives us beating hearts. And how does he do this? Well, he sends us his Holy Spirit. This is what John means in verse seven, whoever, is, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Being born of God means being regenerated by the Holy Spirit, being born again. Because by nature, our hard hearts are unable to reach out and accept Jesus' gift of salvation. So before we even believe in Jesus, he sends his spirit into our hearts, and the Holy Spirit gives us new life. He gives us a new heart so that we're able to believe. John says in verse 15 that no one can confess that Jesus is the Son of God or trust in him for salvation without being born again by the power of the Holy Spirit but we're not just given a heart that trusts in Jesus when we're born again. This, all, this heart is also one that is able to love. And this is the miracle which some think impossible on earth, but one that empowers us to love like Jesus. Because it's true that we're not gods. We're not able to love like Jesus by our own effort, by our own nature. But if you are a Christian, you've been born again, you have the power of God dwelling within you because the Holy Spirit doesn't just give you new life and then leave you to to do okay on your own. Rather, look at verse 16. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. John explains in verse 13 that God abides in us through the presence of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit not only removes our black hole hearts and gives us new ones that beat like Jesus' heart, he also lives with us and abides in us all of the time. And as the spirit dwells in our new hearts, he continues to enable us to put our sin and hate to death and to live with righteousness and love. This is what it means to live through Jesus and to be born of God. Now, I wanna make sure this is clear because this is an area of doctrine that a lot of Christians can misunderstand. Even us zealous Reformed Christians who like to go on and on about total depravity can miss over the fact that Christians are no longer totally depraved in the way unbelievers are. Because the reality of regeneration means that we're no longer unable to trust in God for our salvation, we're no longer unable to please Him. That there are parts of us in which the Spirit has killed sin and made righteousness alive. The process of regeneration starts a renewal in our hearts, and the Spirit continues this renewal in his work of sanctification. But throughout our entire lives, as he abides in us, the Spirit works in our hearts to make us less and less depraved. We'll never get fully there. We'll never be completely undepraved, but neither are we totally depraved now that we have been born of the Spirit. Other Christians act like love is not important to the Christian life at all. That once you're in, once you're saved by faith, you don't need to do anything else. You don't need to repent from your sin or change your behavior at all. Others say that there is a change that's caused by the Spirit, but it manifests in speaking in tongues or healing rather than in love. And still others say that the Christian life is all about what you know and not about what you do. But John confronts us with the reality that love is the necessary result of believing in Jesus. One of the issues that John addresses in his letter is false teaching, and he gives his readers a litmus test for discerning between true and false teachers, and that test is love. It's the fruit of their teaching. John says that love is the evidence that we believe and follow Jesus. We don't prove that we're truly Christians by showing off our bookshelves or by speaking in tongues. We prove that we're Christians by our love. And this order is so important because some Christians get it wrong the other direction and they make love too important to our Christian walk. They lose the doctrine of justification by faith alone, by making love out to be too important. They claim that our love for God comes before our salvation or even contributes to it in some way. They don't deny uh, that we're saved by faith, they deny the alone. And so they, m- they might even have trouble with this verse in our passage, that it wasn't that we first loved God, but that he loved us. John doesn't say, uh, sorry. Um, remember, what, remember what Paul says in Galatians five, when he lists the fruit of the spirit, he says the fruit of the spirit is love. The first fruit of the spirit is love. And that means that it's the Spirit's fruit in us, it's not our fruit. So in the Christian life, our sanctification, our ability to love others, in no way contributes to our salvation, but rather it's the fruit and evidence of our salvation. It's the fruit of the Spirit's work in our lives. And so if love is the necessary result of our believing in Jesus, if it's the evidence and fruit of the Spirit's work, What does that leave for us to do? Do we just sit back on the couch, put it on the TV, and wait for the Spirit to do his work? That might seem like the natural conclusion when we say that it's the Spirit's work that makes us love, but it's actually the opposite of what John concludes. Look again at what he said in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. John doesn't say love is the fruit and evidence of God's work in you, therefore you don't need to do anything. He'll do it all for you. Rather, the reason he commands us to love is that love is the necessary result of the Spirit's work. Love is from God, but we still need to love. It's true that sanctification is the Spirit's work and not ours, but that doesn't mean we're robots that he controls. We're still humans with the power of choice, and so John exhorts us to choose to act like the person the Holy Spirit is forming us into. John exhorts us to choose to act like the person the Holy Spirit is forming us into. Yes, it's the Spirit's work to finish. He will complete the good work in us that he started. But why would you want to miss out on working alongside him? On why, or why would you want to make his work any harder? We might not be able to make ourselves into more loving people by sheer effort, by sheer force of will. But the Holy Spirit is able to use even our feeble and weak attempts at loving others to form us into more loving Christians. He's able to use our weak and feeble efforts to further our sanctification. So what does that leave for us to do? Well, it leaves for us the task of striving for the goal of imitating God's love. As we interact with our neighbors, we are to try our hardest to love them, like God has loved us. And that means those four things that we saw earlier being more concerned with others than ourselves, by being more concerned with the people that don't deserve it, the people that don't love us. It means that, for, that we forgive them when they sin against us, and it means sacrificing ourselves for the good of others, laying aside our own desires or our own uh, wants for the good of others. And even with new hearts, and the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, this is a, this is a very difficult task, I, I'm aware. It sounds impossible even for us, but start small and try practicing love. Just like at the gym, you can't start with the 60-pound dumbbells, so in the Christian life, you can't start by laying down your life. You have to start with small acts of love, just noticing what the people around you need and fulfilling those needs. As you make those small steps toward loving your neighbor, You'll notice that it gets easier and easier with time, just like we can be ri- uh, driving down the freeway and um, you know, totally zo- zone out because uh, we're just familiar with that route to work. So loving others will become a habit that we can do without thinking when we practice it, when the Holy Spirit forms the habit in us. And you form habits by doing them. So let's form the habit of love by actively seeking to love others with the help of the Spirit Because when you find it difficult, when it's the last thing you want to do, we need to remember that it is the Holy Spirit that abides in you. The Holy Spirit is making you a more loving person. In those moments when you find it difficult, pray to the Holy Spirit and ask that he would give you the power to be more loving. Ask that he would give you the desire to act like the person that he is forming you into. And remember that your love or lack of it doesn't change God's love for you because he loved you first. He loved us even when we hated him. He gave us his son to save us from our sins and death, and he gives us his spirit so that we can love. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we stand in awe before your love. We can never thank you and praise you enough for the great price you paid to save us from our hate and death. The gift of Jesus' perfect life and sacrifice is greater than anything we could ever imagine. The love that motivated you to give your only son is something we can only begin to understand. Lord, we thank you so much for loving us when we hated you. We thank you for forgiving our sins and sacrificing your son to save us. And we pray that you would send your spirit more and more into our hearts to enable us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Give us the motivation and the ability to form the habit of love in our lives so that we might imitate your great love and show you gratitude. Holy Spirit, come as love so we may adore the Father and love him as our all. And now, as we turn our hearts to the giving of our gifts, allow us to love you with the resources you have entrusted us with. Enable us by your Holy Spirit to be self-giving and others-focused so we can support the ministry of your church with our tithes and offerings. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.